thank you all for coming to what is the, uh, the final session of this term. Uh, and uh, we're very pleased to welcome Michael Moore. I last saw Michael about four months ago when we were signing off a, a new housing plan for Southwark, or at least advice so to them. Uh, and uh, and uh, there had been quite a lot of um, tensions in that exercise, which Michael has been very good at smoothing it over. Um, Michael mainly now works with the Smith Institute, and we're going to talk about liberalism in London, which I know so it should be very interesting. Well, thank you for that introduction. I said make it brief, and the idea that, uh, Christine, you know nothing about it. I was going to begin by saying... I think this is the third time I've spoken to one of these seminars. And on the previous two occasions, I was invited because uh, the subject was something I knew about or had worked on or whatever. Well, I have to say, uh, when I was invited in the autumn, and indeed when I began work on this considerably more recently, I knew nothing about localism in London. So whether it was that the previous experiment worked all right or that nobody else knew about it, I don't know. I'm going to try and lay out what I hope is factual information and then end up with some conclusions which are very much my own opinion. <coughs> First of all, I thought it'd be useful just to begin by linking the localism debate to the way in which London government has developed. You can go back a long way, uh, but I begin with 1889 and the London County Council. The first attempt to create a strong <coughs> executive delivery organisation for London. Ten years later, you get the creation of the Metropolitan Boroughs, 28 borough councils, substantially smaller than the modern borough councils, based on the vestries that existed before, which are uh, abolished, resented by the progressive majority on the LCC, who saw it as an attempt to fragment and balkanise the London that they had been trying to create. London County Council covered a smaller area than the modern Greater London, but gradually parish councils in what's now Outer London disappeared. And there's some interesting work being done by somebody at London South Bank which shows the last one in North Orkington disappeared in 1935. In 1960, you get the great report, the, the last really systematic report on, uh, on London government, the Herbert Commission, looking in great detail at the structure for the future. And the bones of our modern structure uh, the uh, geographical territory of Greater London, the structure of the London-wide government and the London boroughs, and the London boroughs as they still exist, come out of that. Twenty years later, you get the abolition of the, uh, of the Greater London Council, and for a while, uh, you go to a system in which the boroughs are dominant, but then in 2000, the creation of the London mayoralty and in 2011, the Localism Act, part of which we're here to talk about today. Just to be awkward, are the boroughs which you have down here at GLC town, 
equivalent of a metropolitan borough? Um, the, the 1899 Act created 28 metropolitan boroughs within the, within the LCC area. The 1963 Act creates 32 London boroughs plus the city within the GLC area. Very roughly, and it's very crude, each of the boroughs that were in the LCC area take over um, 20, uh, two or possibly two and a bit of the, of the previous boroughs. It's worth saying when you ask that question, I, I was talking about these issues to a group from France, from Paris, from the Paris region last autumn. They expressed incredulity that government could have eliminated the small municipalities that existed before 96. It was quite unthinkable in the context of what uh, they knew about. Just want to say this about localism before I get into the body of it, because I think there is a confusion uh, in this debate. Localism is two things. It's a body of ideas, and it is a, um, a specific piece of legislation. And the ambition and the variety of localism as a body of ideas is much greater than what's in the 2011 Act. So, I said that the thing about London localism, it's overlain by nostalgia and romanticism and a sort of whimsical air to it. And I've had for years this book by Rasmus in London, The Unique City, uh, which in one of the books about London that uh, describes the assembly of London as a polycentric city from lots of small communities has this extraordinary phrase people still live in their own houses in small communities with local governments just like the Middle Ages and you see a lot of this in literature or in film um, Passport to Pimlico, the sudden discovery after the Blitz. This, uh, I have said this is fiction. This isn't part of the London Government Act. This, the sudden discovery as a bond house was being demolished of old documents that proved Pimlico was really part of Burgundy and was entitled to be an independent country. And there's a, there's a lot of this romantic talk about different areas of London. I was quite interested in looking at the extent to which the idea of localism, community government, uh, units of government smaller than the borough had been part of previous debates. And there's only, there's only one source for it. And in, um, in the Herbert Commission, you, you read about um, uh, the, the LSE under W.A. Robson was very prolific in generating ideas. For, uh, for London government came up with their scheme A which was very much what we got the GLC and the boroughs uh, 250,000 population borough councils and a big strategic authority but then scheme B which I'd not really come across before which was to divide London into six big authorities which they called metropolitan counties six perhaps four I don't know uh, with, with some functions and then to have urban parishes beneath them and I thought that was, that was quite, it was rejected 
interestingly, because the Herbert Commission thought it would be completely uh, unworkable. They thought that the parishes with executive and uh, advisory functions would be impossible. There'd be nothing for the members of the council to do, so they'd start trying to find something for themselves to do, and there'd be perpetual conflict between the two tiers. It's quite interesting that people did... Uh, the only real reference I can find to people going to a smaller unit uh, was this uh, scheme originated by the LSE. I talked in the course of preparing this to one um, uh, borough chief executive who... Um, made this point that the boroughs we've got are too small for the big things and too big for the small things and the places people identify with are not the boroughs but the smaller communities and his examples were Neesden, Norwood and, uh, and New Cross and I think that is a real tension in London. So the background to the current debate um, Jeff Mulgan and others, with a lot of support from the Local Government Association, uh, produced and, and also from ministers at times at the time when David Miliband was a minister in the Communities and Local Government Department, came up with this notion of double devolution, that government should devolve powers to local authorities and that local authorities in turn should devolve power to community and neighbourhood organisations. Published quite a substantial set of essays about that in 2006. The response of the, uh, the Labour government was the, I must say, eminently forgettable empowerment white paper. A huge book uh, costing... I, I mean, if... Um, I, I'll tell you what, the... the um, in the days of the Herbert Commission, you could buy a, a, a very well-written official report from 28 shillings, which was £1.40. The, the Empowerment White Paper was a huge book, costing something like £30, um, and containing very little, but expressing the same aspiration, just not doing very much to deliver it. And then the Coalition Agreement, actually in very similar language, the Empowerment White Paper, picking up this rhetoric about a fundamental shift of power from Westminster people, promoting decentralisation, new powers to councils and to communities and neighbourhoods. It's not just the coalition. Uh, this is Hilary Benn about a week ago talking about how the Labour opposition is endorsing the localism idea. And it does seem to me localism is something that absolutely now falls into Galbraith's category of conventional wisdom the things that are acceptable, the things that people talk about. There is some version of, uh, of localism that nobody, um, with a few exceptions, will speak out, certainly nobody in authority speaks out against. So, the act that we got. First of all, I mean, it's called the Localism Act. I think at any other time it would have been called the Local Government Act because it had lots of general provisions about local government. One of them is strengthening London government. 
taking the London Development Agency, bringing it under the mayor, the London Homes and Communities Agency, which was uh, an agency of central government, putting it under the mayor, making the mayor the police authority, something incidentally that the left had demanded right since the very beginning of London government. We got the first London Police Authority in 2000. Now it is directly under the mayor as opposed to the slightly more independent structure it had before. The power to establish development corporations, which had been a central government power, and a permissive power in the legislation to devolve other services from Whitehall. Then you get some things that strengthen local authorities. Local government for years was hamstrung by the doctrine of ultra-vires, that you couldn't do what was beyond your powers that all those local government acts spelt out specific things that local councils could do, and if there wasn't a law that said you could do it, then you couldn't do it. Local government, for generations, had asked for a power of general competence, and the legislation has this phrase, local authority has power to do anything that individuals may do. Councils had asked for it for years, no resources behind it, and the previous tentative step in that direction, a power for local authorities to promote well-being, had not really been used very much. Local authorities in the period since that was passed had been very cautious about it. Then the community sections. Community rights, the right to challenge uh, who was providing, what agency was providing a particular service, the right to bid for assets of community value, and the right to build certain development and also the provision for neighbourhood plans, which could be drawn up by neighbourhood forums or parish councils. I just want to talk about parish councils for a moment. Um, the 1963 reorganisation did not permit any structure, any political structure, below the level of the borough. That was changed in an than a piece of legislation in 2007. You can set up what are called parish, neighbourhood, village or community councils. The government have consulted a bit on making the procedure a bit more simple and Eric Pickles has this phrase, parishes are localism's magic wand. Um, just before I get on to the next screen, which begins to talk about the detail of what's happening, this is based on a few days working on this and looking at things. I have some of the examples. No doubt people, I've been finding others since I finished these slides. No doubt others will have others. To the best of my knowledge, only one London Parish Council has so far been approved. Uh, went through the process, a referendum in Queen's Park in Westminster, and, uh, and it's been, uh, it, it, it will have its first elections in 2014 at the same time as the Borough Council. Two more that I know are in the pipeline, Bermondsey and Bankside, London Fields. I must say if government is going to take the view that parish council elections must take place at the same time as the four yearly Borough Council elections, which is the view they've taken on, on Queen's Park, uh, it will be some time before we see much of a flowering of parish councils. There's definitely one out there. Back to where I was, just running through the provisions of the Localism Act as they affect London. Localism Act strengthens 
city government and it is in some respects devolution from the national government to the city. I think there was a general feeling across London and across different political views, and business and so on, that the 1999 Act, the creation of the mayoralty, was a success. The previous government in 2007 extended the role of the mayoralty um, in particular in areas of housing and planning and waste and skills. And I make this point that uh, London used to be the only place that hadn't got a strategic planning framework. The irony of the position we're now in is it's the only one that's got one. Limitations on what's been done for London government is that its resources are limited and it's not a strong executive delivery organisation that may have the potential to become that. Uh, my questions about this are just these. Is a strong city authority really localism? Actually, I think it's not a bad idea. Uh, it's the traditional policy of the left in, uh, in the uh, 1890s with the first London County Council, in the 1930s with the Herbert Morrison Labour London County Council, and with the Labour administration at the GLC. Uh, Labour has seen the strong London government as an instrument to deliver primarily in the past on objects of social and housing policy. Uh, so it's interesting that we get strong city government under the present government. I do think, however, that there is some potential for uh, the mayor-city uh, hall arrangement to be more strategic than the Greater London Council was ever able to be. I think the great missed opportunity in, in London government was 1964 when you had a legal framework that uh, create, that said you had a strategic authority, but actually County Hall found it very difficult to shed the habits of executive service delivery in detail. Neighbourhood planning. I think neighbourhood planning is one of the most interesting and one of the most problematic aspects of, uh, of localism. And it seems to me it's the only one that is attracting a lot of interest in London. So it allows people to come together to, uh, to draw up a plan and say where new development should go. Pretty tightly constrained because it's got to be within the London plan and the borough plan but a little bit of scope around the edges. It can be prepared either by a forum established for the purpose or by a parish council and it will get some of the community infrastructure levy money that councils will be able to collect in areas where development is taking place. Quite a lot of interest in London. And this is just the ones in central London. And the colour coding, I think the greens are the ones that are actually uh, a long way through the process. The red's a bit further and the, the, the yellow further away again. Um, and you can, there is a similar map for the whole of London. So quite a lot of groups getting going, working on this. Um, as of the last thing that I found, six uh, forums designated across quite a spread of, uh, of, uh, of boroughs uh, and 20 more applications for designation and 30 more at an earlier stage in the pipeline. On the other hand, as recently as last November, half the boroughs said they'd not had any expressions of interest at all. 
Just to show where this is nationally, the first neighbourhood plan anywhere in the country to go through its local referendum uh, was approved at the Eden Valley in, uh, in Cumbria, uh, I think, yes, last week, uh, a very few days, a few days ago. Itself illustrative of one of the things that I think is going on on neighbourhood planning. Uh, they've got a neighbourhood plan that has won the support of the local authority and has got agreement in a referendum, but the impetus came from a group of planning consultants who happened to live there and thought this was, uh, this was a way, uh, way forward. A um, couple of London examples, uh, the Dartmouth Park one in Camden at the expression of interest stage, overwhelming support for doing something. On the other hand, others will have seen the piece in The Guardian ten days ago about Stamford Hill, where two uh, completely different organisations have got together, um, have, have, have not got together, have submitted alternative and competing things. Uh, one of them very centred on the Orthodox Jewish community, the other not. Uh, and I, I, I think <coughs> this phrase, this approach would work in a country village, but here you have real divisions. I commend to people a blog on the um, Regeneration and Renewal site, which was posted this morning by Chris Brown, who I think came to talk here last week, who also describes... Uh, warfare breaking out in the Bankside, Bermondsey area. Um, and um, as Christine said, she and I know about Southwark. One of the issues is that uh, some of the community activists think that the council is raising its community infrastructure money in the north of the borough and spreading the jam rather thinly in other areas and is a bit wary of creating a structure which would uh, entrench some of it for the immediate neighbourhood. Anyhow, others will know, uh, will know more uh, about this. Um, I think it's too soon to judge. There is a lot of interest... Um, there's no neighbourhood plan yet approved or indeed anywhere near approval. I must say I think there's a key ambiguity in the government statements about neighbourhood planning. Is it designed to make... They say to developers, oh, this will enable you to develop, and they say to communities, oh, this will enable you to stop development. So I think it will be, it will be difficult uh, to satisfy both sets of aspirations. Um, there are national organisations available to support local forums that are drawing up the plans uh, and uh, there is a budget of I think 20,000, a bit more 20,000 pounds available to them uh, one neighbourhood plan that's at quite an advanced stage the Tame one in Oxfordshire has spent 100,000 pounds preparing their plan not quite clear how they, uh, how they uh, raised it I think people who try and use the neighbourhood plan structure to prevent communities experiencing the worst of major social and economic change are likely to be disappointed because I don't think the teeth are in there uh, to do that and I certainly don't think neighbourhood planning provides much of a vehicle to address the crisis in affordable housing. But of all the things in localism, this is the one where something is happening and where there's action taking place. Um, the community rights. I can't find much evidence of much going on in this area, in London. 
Uh, there is a community group in Nunhead in Southwark, and they're on the websites, and when you search, you find them, who have got a pub listed as being an asset of community value. And having got it listed as an asset of community value, they've got six months to raise three quarters of a million pounds to buy it, and they're not quite sure whether they can do that. As far as I can tell, and there may be colleagues here who know more than I do, there are people in other boroughs trying to get assets listed, but I don't think any are yet listed. There may be examples that others will uh, know about. So a few things I want to say in conclusion. I generally subscribe to the criticism that councils in the past have often been remote and insensitive and bureaucratic. I put up that slide at the beginning about how London government has evolved and at every stage the formal structure of London government has been driven by the argument of the economy of scale. So you move from vestries to metropolitan boroughs, from metropolitan boroughs to London boroughs, the argument you need a population of 250, 300,000. So all, all the ancient forms of local subsidiary government have been swept away. So actually, something that does create more local structure, are you clear about what it's for, I, I, I tend, to, uh, tend to support. But I don't think these changes are an answer to the big questions of how you govern London. And I think that localism is neither the most interesting nor the most important thing that is happening in London at the moment. You, I've seen the uh, programme you've had this term. The demographic change is incredible. The change in what I call this the London agenda. You know, I picked up when Christine and I were working on Southwark uh, last year, this wonderful thing in Southwark documents from the 1970s. Uh, they're building more and more council housing. The population was going down and down. They said, by 1980, we'll have a housing surplus in the borough. Now, they never did. And not long after that, the trend continued. But the change in the, the policy agenda and the explicit policy, you know, I, there is a great debate to have about whether official policies to move people and jobs out of London and to see the population go down, whether the official policies actually made much difference or whether it was a series of independent trends. The fact is, when I lived and worked in London for the first time in the 1970s, the agenda was dominated by a falling population. Now it's dominated by a very rapidly rising population. And you've seen that in the figures from the GLA. Uh, and I picked it up when I worked in, uh, in London government again in the early 2000s. I picked it up very clearly. We were going to do a piece of work about three or four years ago in an East London borough. I realised a lot of this population growth is actually in quite poor bits of London, um, in East London. And looking at this borough, deeply concerned council, keen to do the best for their citizens, all kinds of aspirations in their planning documents. They wanted a better retail offer, uh, they wanted some office jobs so people could work locally, they'd quite like to have better open space. But actually, whenever a site came up in the borough, it went for housing. Uh, and so the aspiration of getting um, better shops or, or local jobs uh, was a long way away. Neighbourhood planning is not going to change that. Demographic change has completely changed 
what London Authority is about. Secondly, there's what I call the world city narrative. You know, and it's linked to demographic change, but it's not the whole thing. London, it, it is the city hall under both mayors, London first and allies agenda. It is, London is one of three world financial centers. Uh, business and financial services is key to London. Business and financial services is key uh, to the whole country. It is our job to create a regulatory and a physical environment in which those things can flourish. Now, I don't think that argument is completely wrong. What I do think is if you push it to extremes, uh, as some spokespeople do, it becomes an entirely neoliberal vision of what London is for, in which we support every low tax and deregulatory policy that is around. The very interesting thing about the world city narrative is it just wasn't there. It wasn't there 50 years ago when people looked at London government. It, you know, it just wasn't, the, they knew London was a capital city, but the, the, the narrative about it being the global centre wasn't there. Wasn't there in the Abercrombie plan, the great plan for the future of London. Not a word. And it, 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 it wasn't there in the Great London Development Plan. You don't find it before the 1990s. And I don't think there's a mature debate among the citizenry in London about to what extent we all buy that argument. It has been very um, strongly advanced uh, under, under both mayors, uh, and it has been endorsed actually by both governments, but I don't think it's with the grain, and how it fits with some of this other stuff, I don't know. It does fit, of course, with strength and city government. It's city government in order to deliver certain things. I think that the borough councils are completely preoccupied with spending cuts. You know, they know they've got right. They know they've got duties under the new legislation. They've got to put up on their websites community right to this, community right to that, have you thought of writing a neighbourhood plan. But actually, councillors and officials are spending all their time thinking, how on earth do we con continue to deliver personal social services? Uh, every local authority has a version of the graph that Barnett uh, initially prepared called the graph of doom about how in 10 years time you've only got money for the bare minimum of statutory services. That's, what, that, that, that's what's the daily concern of those people. There's the continued pressure for very big ticket infrastructure, which again I think sits uneasily with, uh, with localism. I mean, one of the places that... Um, uh, is um, uh, trying to develop a, a neighbourhood plan is Bloomsbury and Somers Town. Well, a lot of Bloomsbury and so the Somers Town end is going to uh, lose a lot of its territory uh, under uh, HS2. Uh, if people know the um, there's a passage in Dickens's Dombey and Son about the original development of the railway at Euston. Will it be all that again? You know, places thrown up, huge holes, the mud, the rest of it. And there's something about the scale of HS2 which kind of dwarfs the Somerstown and Bloomsbury neighbourhood plan and begs questions about that's where the real the effort the effort should be. And then this interesting debate about uh, resources for London. And Tony was here and has gone. There's a lot of work going on on this. And I I think the um, 
the resources arguments are important. I think it's very difficult to consider and very dangerous to just talk about a London debate in the absence of the rest of the country. And this is my, my last slide, which that on the one hand you've got localism, on the other hand you've got the collapse of anything like the historic local government finance system. The last really systematic inquiry on local government finance was Layfield in the uh, 1970s, published in 1976. He said you can have one of two systems. You can either have a local system in which local authorities are primarily responsible for raising their own taxation, or you can have a central system in which government says what standard of service each local authority should provide. We have gradually, without anybody in government ever saying it explicitly, we've ended up in Layfield centralist op. There's still the theatrical trappings of bits of the local government system, and the rhetoric is there, but actually we've ended up in the centralist option. In the, in the 20th century, gradually, as what the state did grew, services moved from the locality to the centre uh, under the poor law, a lot of the relief of poverty, you raised from local rates. When you got to a wider system in the interwar period, the rate base across the country wasn't adequate to meet those costs. When you created a national health service, one of the big decisions taken by an Iron Bevan in creating the national health service was to take the municipal hospitals and move them all into a national service. Everybody knows that. That's an old story. What I think is much more uh, important in this context and where there is a real danger for London is here. The tax base is overwhelmingly in London and the South East now. Both the taxes we notionally have, council tax and business rates, both in the end are property taxes derived from the old rating system. As the old uh, industrial base has gone and all that stuff about business and financial services. Actually, enormous proportion of the national tax base is now in London and the South East. Most of the, uh, and on the council <coughs> tax side, most of, the, uh, most of the, uh, the, the larger properties are in London and the South East. So that when government talks, as they have in the last year, about giving part of the local rate, part of the business rate back to local authorities, actually, mm, The real winners from that are a small number of central London authorities. There are marginal gainers elsewhere in the country, but most... most, When when you look at the fact that um, council's ability to raise taxes within that system is very tightly restricted, um, I doubt whether... Go back to that um, double devolution, devolution to local government and devolution to community groups... I don't think without some sort of serious local government finance system, I don't think you can make a reality of that. I think, interestingly, you get back into the problem that the Herbert Commission talked about if you created parish councils, that people wouldn't be accountable for the decisions uh, they took. I also think that there is a terrible risk of London trying to solve its problems at the expense of the rest of the country. 
when the poll tax and the national business rate came in, essentially one of the things government did was they took the, the great business rate base of the city and Westminster, which had kept the GLC and the ILEA afloat through good years and bad, they took that rate base and spread it over the whole country. That was essentially what national business rates were about. If the London authorities take that back, you make local government in the rest of the country hewers of wood and drawers of water. You leave them with a very limited uh, basis. The only other way I can see through this, which I think again is bad for local democracy and bad for localism, is you end up with a tier of services uh, for which local government and the one that's on the, uh, the government's going to have to face a very difficult issue about this debate about adult social care. Either local authorities uh, end up running it, in which case they'll be receiving a, a, a government grant to deliver a standard of service specified at the centre with very little discretion, or uh, government bite the bullet and transfer it to the National Health Service and make it national. So, I've tried to give you a uh, factual outline of what seems to me to be happening on localism in London. And I've then tried to conclude by saying that uh, I think uh, the, uh, the real arguments and the real debates are probably elsewhere. Thank you. Quite a lot of people here aren't from Britain, uh, and it may be that some of what was said is a bit obscure to rational people who <laughs> run different systems from London and England. So I just wondered whether there were places where you wanted clarification or, or wanted to ask sort of straightforward factual questions first. I mean, they, that probably applies to the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody it's, it's nice in some ways to have a, a conversation which is about going large, small, large, small, as compared to the, the usual, which is sort of where the London stopped um, over the history of the LCC and then and then the Greater London, the Greater South East. So that, I think makes one think about things in different ways. But who wants to start the conversation? Duncan? That was a good I mean, I agree. So Duncan Barry, University of Westminster. Um, I mean, I agree entirely with the conclusions that neighbourhood planning is not actually the critical issue for London's future. Um, but there are sort of three points I wanted to make. Firstly, the issue of um, the structures of direct and representative democracy you didn't really cover. Um, this whole issue, the neighbourhood plans are, the neighbourhood forum are effectively self-appointed and the belief from central government that their aspirations and decisions are valid so long as there is basically a, a, a vote and a local ballot and with no thresholds. So, you know, 21 people can write a neighbourhood plan, two can vote for it, one against, and it then can actually become the planning document for the area if they go down the neighbourhood development order process. So there's an interesting issue there. Um, the, the second uh, point really was the issue about the procedures on neighbourhood planning. I mean, you commented that they're very unclear. I think that's an understatement. I mean, we're still not clear what a neighbourhood plan can or cannot do in the sense of a fundamental issue like land use allocation 
Ministers basically say that neighbourhood plans have to do the minimum set in a core strategy, but in half the councils in the country there isn't a core strategy, and most of the core strategies don't set targets by neighbourhood. So in the initial neighbourhood plans that have gone through, most of them actually opposing development, it's left to individual assessors to decide whether a fundamental issue of can you actually drop a housing scheme or not, allocate a site from one land use to another, that's not clear. The obvious compromise is that you know, a neighbourhood should be able to swap sites but not actually delete something which is a fundamental target. But government will not say that. They may in about two years' time, which is going to be far too late. And then the, the fundamental issue of the strategic against the local. I mean, clearly you can't really justify lump the mayor as, as local, although the mayor is obviously trying to do that. That's not the perception of the boroughs, never mind the neighbourhoods. But the fundamental issue about defensive strategic planning against neighbourhood self-interest is absolutely vital in terms of issues of social equity. Most of the neighbourhood groups are nimbiest. Most of them are just run by professionals. They're generally not representative. There are a few exceptions, but the majority, are, especially those in the country, are opposing any form of development. They're self-interest protection rackets. Where does that lead the whole social polarisation agenda? It will only get worse. Your views. <laughs> <laughs> I thought there was a question somewhere. Well, I, I suppose what I'd say is this. And again, it's something that goes back to the first London plan in 2001 and carries on under both mayors. The, the core response of London government to demographic change is we no longer have the aspiration of moving people uh, out of the area on policies of planned dispersal. London must invest in new housing and new jobs within its boundaries in order to meet that. I think there is a long-term question whether that strategy is either, you, either what you devolve to neighbourhoods is um, paper and uh, negligible powers. If you devolve real powers, then you can't deliver that. Uh, and if, 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 if you're devolving substantive powers, I won't say you can't. It becomes unlikely that people can deliver that uh, city government can deliver that aspiration of meeting the population growth uh, within uh, within London. And um, I think the risk in what uh, Duncan was saying is we we wait until it's too late to find out that. I mean, the urban task force, uh, which informed uh, both what London did and what government did, talked about. High density, high quality development for urban living. We never really achieved anywhere, or in very few places, the densities that uh, Rogers was talking about, basically because they're not very popular with borough councils and wouldn't be very popular, I suspect, with, uh, with neighbourhood plans. If the move to neighbourhood planning means that you can't develop to higher densities, then the prospect of meeting the needs of the growing population within London, I think, becomes uh, rather remote. Now, people might say no bad thing. It, it uh, jeopardises the fundamental character of the city. OK, but I, I must say, I think that there, uh, there was some good stuff done on densities. And for example, if you redevelop existing town centres to get some higher density accommodation, it seems to me you win always. You get the, the housing close to the public transport mode. 
uh, and you get a better prospects for a viable um, sort of leisure and recreation economy, whether it's people using the swimming pools or using health clubs or using restaurants or, or, or whatever. It seems you can make that kind of thing work. Uh, and uh, maybe he may, may have been planning the military against it. And they were planning without any local government finance to go with it. I mean, you can perfectly well incentivize an area by a tube station to build high rise if you're prepared to give them benefits from so doing. I'm not saying you should. I'm just saying you can. That was where I'd say, I suppose the other point is high density, high quality urban living. We didn't achieve the densities, we certainly didn't achieve the quality. And I don't mean, I, I mean, here and there, good architecture, but not the right level of community facilities and community investment. And I don't think the community infrastructure maybe we've, we've ended up with is sufficient to do that. Uh, John, I just comment, Michael, on where the way word neighbourhood comes across my weekly scanning of things, or monthly scanning of things, uh, other than through blogs and indeed learner um, uh, journals on regeneration or whatever it may be, it's the Metropolitan Police Service who appropriated it. So I actually get leaflets now, I have had more than ever in the past quarter, as you can imagine, with all the questions about what is the future structure of staffing levels of police station closures. The Safe Neighbourhood Team is photographed and appears on the sheet that comes through the letterbox. We have a very active, because we have an activist neighbour, um, who runs Neighbourhood Watch, which you might think was simply sort of a self-protection group, uh, sort of who were able, well, we've never talked about a posse. But instead of having posses protecting the neighbourhood, she now organises uh, bring a bottle in her back garden. And there's a sort of sense of people of all ages and conditions gathering in a way that might not have happened before her activism was manifest. Uh, and now we, of course, this is added to what traditionally was the Liberal Democrat leafleting, which emphasized neighborhoods and showed photographs of people at pedestrian crossings or lack of pedestrian crossings and so forth. But it seems as if that is the way that you would hear about neighbourhoods. I don't hear about neighbourhood health and well-being, because the NHS is organised in a different way, and nobody understands the reorganisations that are going on in the GDP service, which you all arrested, despite the barriers taking on powerful overviews. Um, I wonder what your comment is on I, that. I, well, my, my, my comment is simply this, that uh, when a, a uh, Loose and ill-defined concept like uh, neighbourhood hits a um, disciplined command and control force like the police, <laughs> and instruction goes down. You all live in neighbourhoods now, and you're no longer this. You are now neighbourhood police. I mean, that, 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 that's what happens. I mean, you know, lots of people, that stuff has gone out of fashion in the police. You know, they will put out a circular to their people, and they say, right. You're all, uh, you're, you're, you're all neighbourhoods now, and I think it, it, it's the way it works. Just uh, ask you a question as to whether any, uh, Toby and others will recall as well, uh, whether, was there any serious analysis of the benefits or disbenefits of neighbourhood arrangements in boroughs like Tower Hamlets, which did have seven neighbourhoods seven years ago? Well, I did get from a colleague 
on something uh, again a bit late to incorporate something about the the um, many versions of localism which I'll come back to. I I, I haven't done the discussion about London decentralisation. I mean, I can remember writing a report about decentralisation, something like 1974, and at different points, both isn't and and Tower Hamlets. Uh, Tower Hamlets did, you're quite right, adopt the 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 most radical version of decentralisation, in which there were, and looking back, there must be non-statutory parish councils, but they were effectively ele elected councils. And uh, neighbourhood chief for, for, for each of them, and neighbourhood chief executives. Um, that um, withered on the vine in the um, complex and fascinating work of world of Tower Hamlet's politics. Um, <laughs> and interesting, people aren't talking about that. Uh, people are not talking about structures for formally devolving the borough council. I and mean, I think mean, if you if you went back, say over the last fifteen or twenty years, at some time or other, I would guess certainly most of the inner boroughs, and I guess a lot of the others too, had gone some way down the road of devolving their services to neighbourhoods. Yes, I mean, six six neighbourhood housing offices, six neighbourhood social services offices, then they would be integrated. Uh, the phrase many town halls was sometimes used. Um, to just, I think those were frozen out by financial things and changes of, of political control. And that's that's I mean, it's just an unholy unit, uniting of left and right, isn't it? A lot of the rhetoric of radical community activists and the rhetoric of the small state people talking about devolving everything um, in ways... And the thing about what Tahamits did with the neighbourhoods or when people were creating lots of neighbourhood offices, it was familiar territory for borough treasurers. You know, it was revenue and capital, you were buying buildings, you were paying salaries. You, you were actually trying to answer the question, how do we deliver this service on a local basis? But all this is a bit more uh, loose and aspirational than that. Um, It may just be 
10-15% of the population of any one neighborhood. But there's a lot of feeling that something has to be done and we will form ourselves in some kind of group and we will put pressure on the council. It's kind of in possibly disorganized, possibly kind of rather incoherent, but it is definitely there in large parts of central and London in particular. Third observation is are some of these um, neighborhood forums going to become very influential politically if they realize that the plan itself will not necessarily deliver? I think some of them will become really good at um, lobbying their elected members and getting planning decisions changed and, and exerting influence you know, so far as it's possible through the um, political process rather than the planning process. Because as soon as local councils realize that they've got you know, a petition of 500 names saying we want to stop this development, you know, any elected council will think twice before approving it. Even given the changes I mentioned at the beginning about the, 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 the changes to the planning system, the weeping and disassembly of the planning system. Where, 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 do, where do you begin? You lift well, another stone, you find another um, subject. I, there is this wonderful um, Orwellian phrase from government, muscular localism which appears to mean centralism. <laughs> it means we, if, um, you know, it's, it's like the famous Brecht uh, quote, you know, that uh, the government are uh, very dissatisfied with the people, it's time for the people to re uh, redouble their efforts. Would it not be much simpler for the government to dissolve the people and elect another one? Exactly. Um, <laughs> you know, some of this stuff is like That's that. There's then, um, it seems to me, Two completely different currents in the the um, uh, maelstrom of ideas. It's the modern Conservative Party. One is what I call the vulgar business critique of planning, which actually surfaced a lot under Gordon Brown as well. You know, put three business people in a bar, and they are oh, planning, it's planning. You know, and it never <coughs> distinguish whether it's government or local. Just planning stops us doing planning stops us doing. So there's all that surging around, and then. There's the, the rhetoric of community empowerment and, as Duncan was saying, direct democracy. And you can run with one of those currents. It's very difficult to run with both of them at once uh, without getting a, a very confused response. And I talked about some of these historic and literary things about small areas, but the fact is, I remember in, in the 70s, people always saying that the reorganization of London government uh, was uh, of, of 64 was a mistake. I, mean, I remember knocking on a door in <laughs> sometime in the 70s and it's like, going in with Wandsworth, worst day's work we ever done. It was wonderful round here when I was a boy. We had our own electricity generating station, we had everything. And, you know, that kind of nostalgia for what was there before. Actually, uh, I, I think we're all slaves to the economies of scale argument. Um, I just don't think you could run anything like the present London boroughs on a very small scale. I, I, don't, I, I, I think the way the local government finance system is going, very difficult to run any service, the demand for which varies inversely with the wealth of an area. Any service linked to public, very difficult to run that on any conceivable local tax base unless you're in one of the handful of very, uh, very affluent areas. In fact, you know, local government's always being asked to make efficiency savings. I do think they ought to cost up just dismantling the whole apparatus 
of having a tax collection system and chasing people from arrears and getting people to just throw it all away. You know, there's an efficiency saving because it, it's becoming increasingly, uh, increasingly un, 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 unrealistic. Neighborhood forums. I think the, the question that's behind this, and I think it seems to me one of the issues why some people who are very skeptical about, I mean, there, there is neighborhood planning, neighborhood forums, parish councils, there is a tangle of things around there. If a geographical minority within a borough managed to use those structures in order to gradually carve out a degree of autonomy from a borough council that was perpetually one party that they didn't like. And it might be Queen's Park in Westminster or it might be Chingford in Waltham Forest or it might be some if it would need a cadre of activists with a very strategic view, and whether the game would really be worth the candle, I can't say. But I think that's what some people have got a bit of an eye on. Could you, could you use it in order to build autonomy against a local authority that you, you didn't like? But you need a cadre of people who are going to work on it for 10 years to, to get there. Yeah. It depends on the physical balance of the council's work. But I'm just thinking of places like Waltham Forest, which almost always Labour, like Wandsworth Island, which is almost always Conservative, where there are areas that continually vote Labour. It's interesting, it also depends on what political parties think they're doing, because political parties organise in order to maximise their representation on the borough council. If they turned inwards in order to create a, a degree of relative autonomy, that might be a different strategy. Oh. Yes, well, I mean, I'm baffled by what you're saying because I think I'm trying to find out where there is a city on the continent of Europe of quarter million inhabitants like my borough, Westminster, um, which is actually more than that now. So quarter million inhabitants. Oh. There's an old town hall where you can actually walk in and have a sort of, you know, this is me, taxpayer, ratepayer, I have something to say or I have a question to ask or anything. So the one-stop shops, all that has completely disappeared. Over and above, we have this beauty of economies of scale. So you have Westminster ganging up with Kensington, Chelsea, and with Hammersmith, all Tory, of course, we are not talking. So you have now actually, well, three times 250,000, but almost a million population. You double that with all the business people who are there every day and so on. I mean, look at wait, how many cities have two million people in the, on the continent of Europe who have no government, no accountable government. And henceforth, I would be very against your idea. And you, maybe it's messy. And maybe it's when you have three levels of, of uh, collecting taxes, as in many countries, and in France, in Switzerland, in Italy, and so on. You know, the local taxes, also planning, the same, that the planning um, responsibilities are also sort of chopped up, up and down. But you, you have checks and balances to this system. And precisely, you won't be able to have, to have a place like the Westminster or opposite uh, forest, uh, or the forest. Doesn't matter which which color. Where well, well, you never ever. I mean, just blanket Tory. That is it, and that's why the Queen's Queen's Park people mm -hmm. who have uh, started to, to start the parish 
I can see that point, and that is where the only Labour, Labour elected members of Wales will sit, and they, and they are precisely having this energy. And I wish them a lot of luck to actually get going with that one, so that they, they have some more, more real local, some real, real decision making in relation to the needs which they have, which differ enormously from the rest of the borough. I'm not quite sure what I said. You, what you're disagreeing with. Well, you said economies are scaled, you have to go for it. So no, 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 sorry, sorry. What I, what I was saying was every reorganisation has been driven by economies of scale, uh, and it is quite right that you try and develop something as an alternative to that. Whether we're doing it in any substantial way is different. I just think we, you know, all the restructurings of London have kind of uncritically accepted arguments about economies of scale, and I think that's wrong. Michael. Same. <coughs> Same could be said of universities, I think. I think that's said about universities. No, I wanted to really say that I so much appreciate your way in which you've grounded this larger problem in a national and regional perspective. That's enormously valuable. And this concentration of the tax base in London and within London in certain areas in the centre of business rates seems to be part of a really serious problem. And your suggestion of scrapping the whole local tax raising thing or at least costing it out is actually a tremendously appealing and interesting idea. Because in fact what we're saying is most of the expenditure of local must be coming from the central and collective revenues of the national state. Why not forget this rather trivial bit which has been raised, raises such complexities of redistribution and equalisation schemes and so So the same reason, surely, as, as Ian was saying, is that it is actually, in principle and in practice, the easiest tax to collect. Now we're not to police. And to police. And we're beginning not to be able to collect or quite a lot of the others. Yeah. And so yeah. the case for going back a to a bigger property-based yeah. tax. But, but then the question is who gets it. But a property-based tax can be connected by a national state oh, yeah. as well as by a local state. And it ought to have access to better GIS systems and better cadastres and so on to enable it to be done. I think we're trying not to tell them that in case we end up with a completely centralist I'm not sure, but it's a very interesting question. I think one of the things which you'll have to come next year's seminar series. Such a wonderful service you're going to answer your seminars. Congratulations. But I mean, the whole question of asking some of the questions which are not part of the normal public discourse should be a very valuable one for a university to be in. The question you raised that you know, nobody ever questions the London World City
exercised in authority sitting, mostly around policies that have not been discussed you know, in a public, effectively in a public arena. I think is a real thing waiting to happen. It's part the, the other side of the neighborhood revolt, I think. It's a sense that the city is not actually being democratically controlled. Is it? Well, we vote for one person mm. on, on, uh, on everything. Yes. Yes. The, the mayoral system has succeeded in doing one of the things that its advocates saw for, that it is polarized and identified decisions and given you so far too and no doubt more in the future individuals with very high name recognition and very high uh, identification. The point I was trying to raise just rather peripherally at the end but I've raised it elsewhere is I, I don't think that debate about or that argument about the world city is is wrong or illegitimate. What I do say is it's not challenged and interrogated in any form. And, and actually, the, the parties in the, in the London elections have all been part of the same central view. That's, that's what I was trying to say, yeah. is, is that we never ever yeah. have a debate yeah. at election time about strategic yeah. issues, yeah. which is what the mayor is supposed to be discharged. Yeah. So there's something about the system which actually prevents there being a debate about the central policies of London. Rate capping needs to change. 
The issue of debate and discussion, I think there's always been an issue about how a neighborhood group relates to a strategic authority. Um, and certainly somebody who ran hundreds of kind of meetings out of City Hall to consult at neighborhood level uh, and at local level on strategic planning matters. There was obviously a difficulty about relating that engagement. There's a fundamental problem that the London Assembly doesn't have significant powers, therefore they're basically not got much to do. But there's also an issue that they've actually not been very good at doing what they can actually do in terms of holding the mayor to account and opening up public debate. That's partly because they're just not adequately resourced in terms of independent capacity to investigate matters, and also because the mayor, as a matter of strategy, under both mayors, has kept as much information away from them as is possible and legal to do so. Um, but I mean, there are obviously fora in which the debate actually takes place. But I think those who are saying that the whole issue of the mayor elections has focused so much on two personalities, or the three or four personalities, that will change next time because it won't be Ken Livingston. It'll be interesting to see whether a new mayor or candidate from the so-called left of the Labour Party is actually going to deal with policy issues as one of people trying to write the manifestos even with three years to go. You know, there is an importance of actually getting a policy debate and away from the discussion of individuals and whether Ken was fiddling his accounts or whether Boris was funnier or not which was basically what the last election ran on. So there is a, a fundamental issue of changing the politics. But also, coming back to the neighbourhood side, what we, I mean, the issue in a sense is do you actually, what powers do you devolve and what resources do you devolve to a neighbourhood group that doesn't have accountability? And there have been real issues about neighbourhood groups trying to put plans together when they have the £20,000 actually goes to the local authority, not the neighbourhood. And even under the community infrastructure levy neighbourhood proportion, this 25%, what's not generally recognised, it only goes to the parish council in a parish council in London and other urban authorities. It stays with the council. And the rules about the council having to consult the neighbourhood of how that's money spent haven't actually been written yet and may never be issued. So the, the, at the moment, as far as I read it, the only way a neighbourhood group in London gets hold of the money is actually by getting urban parish stages as Queen's Park do. So there may be more debate about going down that route, which actually has a more statutory basis than the neighbourhood forum. But from a local authority's point of view, yes, if I was running Southwark, I would be really concerned about Bankside Neighbourhood Forum having 25% of the receipts from development in that area, because you're dealing with hundreds of millions of pounds. And the cap that the government's got introduced per household doesn't apply where there's actually an adopted neighbourhood plan, as far as I can see from the rules. So there are real issues, and, and Southwark, in a sense, is probably quite right to actually take the money off some of the developers in the north of the borough and try and use it to provide services and affordable housing in the centre of the borough. There's an argument putting affordable housing in the south of the borough, but that raises other political issues. Um, so you, this is the whole issue about what a neighbourhood group is actually for and what you know, what powers it is reasonable to give down to that level in a way that isn't accountable. So this whole issue about the balance between national, regional, local and neighbourhood and getting it right is actually fairly fundamental and we haven't really been discussing the subsidiarity debates enough on these kind of issues of developing localism, which is why the French think we're all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, can I come back on the issue which Nancy raised about uh, 
effectively whether there is an interest among the population in the latest news. Because it seems to me quite a lot of evidence that there is a terribly widespread concern about housing in general, about rent levels in the private rent sector problems of getting into our occupation for those who aspire and are not that About the displacements associated with regeneration schemes, well, that's more like last and Patchy, but if you add up the other castle and Bell's Court and Stratford and all the others, there's quite a lot of that kind of resentment. You also come across, I think, in outer London, a lot of concerns about disappearance of jobs and the fact that really if you want to work you have to travel into the centre. And I've heard that coming from local community leaders in extremely posh suburban neighbourhoods, not just from impoverished parts of northeast London. And I think it's quite quite a serious uh, thing. They see that everything, as you say, Michael, every time a bit process comes on the market, it disappears into the housing system. Whatever, almost whatever it was before. And whatever happens to the government proposal to uh, change the general development order to facilitate those office houses, which is that, that process of losing other uses to uh, private market housing is very powerful. So I think there are a lot of real issues which are sort of structural issues about Issues about matters, combinations, issues about whether London is full in some sense, you know, whether the, the rate of population growth can should be accommodating how you might try and slow it down or stop if you decided that's what you want to do. Are all extremely live issues in the minds of a lot of people. You read the letters page of the Evening Standard, which I'm stupid enough to do most days. There's that every day there is some Related, housing-related, problem. Not to mention cycling versus drugs. So I think if we had a good political system, we could have some quite strong democratic discussions about the future. I mean, I agree we don't. It's all about personalities, as I can say. But it's very interesting. Every seminar you go to. People put on the screen a bullet point which says the narrow system seems to be working fine. Seeing your side, seeing the side that Tony showed us a thing on the Finance Commission that I went to a week or two ago. Everybody just assumes that this is a shared view. I think some of us are saying it's not. It's not a shared view. It's a terrible mistake. I think my answer to that is I distinguish between the institutions and the policies. And it may not be completely a right distinction to draw. Uh, it seems to me that the institutions have passed certain tests, that they have attracted some electoral participation, they have ensured we have civil leadership people know who it is, and there are at least some mechanisms that resolve old tensions. How do you have the operational independence of the police with some accountability? 
how do you have the operational independence of the transport system with some accountability. Not perfect, but if you go back, um, Transport for London or its predecessor was a nationalised industry from about 1983 to 2000. It was with the GLC from something like 1967 to um, 1983. Then it was a nationalised industry from 1931 to, um, to 1967. And, and I think you know the TFL uh, system is you know on that level. It works. There's always a tension. There will always be a tension. How do you run an enormous operation like that with some political accountability? And, and, and we've got an answer to it. And there's a sense in which it's working. The distinction I draw is this. I called it the World City narrative. There's a dominant story which is about business and financial services, and that's the future of London, and what a lot of sentimental old noisy were ever talking about manufacturing silly old farts, couldn't you see it was all going out the window anyhow? All that matters is people got proper jobs working in banks, and by the way, we need the easiest tax regime and the easiest development regime, and you must, you must not tax bankers' bonuses, and anybody who wants to put up a massive skyscraper, wherever it is, preferably in front of St Paul's, must be allowed to do it. And, and I just think that what democracy needs, you know, don't, don't worry about the institutions, actually what we need is a different narrative. Which, and the parts of that narrative about housing, parts of that open space, parts of how we use that, and parts of actually are about what infrastructure we build. And I've always thought there is a slightly, um, there's, a, there's a question which there may be a perfectly good answer, but I've never heard it, which is why do we spend 15 years and countless billions building a railway to enable more people from the rich boroughs of West London to come and work at Canary Wharf instead of uh, policies that enable people from the poor boroughs much closer to Canary Wharf uh, to get there to... to, to, to we, we, uh, uh, you know, I, uh, there was a little point in what Duncan was saying about the assembly and the assembly's results. You know, well, I think it's rather extraordinary that you create a, a body with um, 25 elected politicians, um, it, it paid a wage with press officers, with research, not huge numbers, but you know, they pay, you know, there's nothing like that in the past. It's extraordinary you run that for now 13 years, uh, and it doesn't throw up somebody um, who can stand for mayor, actually. I think, uh, uh, because it's, it's a platform. You know, catch the Ken Livingstone I knew in 1974. If somebody said to you, no, you haven't got to claim your bus fares every day. You're going to be paid a wage to do it. And there is some basic political skill about how you use those positions. And somehow the assembly hasn't, uh, hasn't worked out like that. And, and, you know, in a sense, there ought to be 25 potential mayoral candidates coming out of that with the, with the resources that run. But I, I think the real question is how you generate a different story so that even if you love the world city narrative and all that it stands for, it's tested against some other argument in, in public debate. And that's what maybe collectively we failed to do, but I think that's the challenge. But this is going back over old ground, but this is not a free-floating story, is it? So this was an instrumental story that was constructed by the Livingston regime and adopted by the Johnson regime, which is to satisfy central government 
in order to try and tap into resources which London doesn't actually have control over. And that's that's one. And the, the other thing to, I, mean, I recall a, a civil servant from DCLG coming here at the time when the extension of cars was being debated and considered, and, and the subject being raised in the seminar as to the interests of the average Londoner or the median Londoner somehow being built into discussion of this. The incredulity, that actually, that this would have anything to do with the argument at all, that what powers the Greater London Authority should have was essentially a national issue about what would deliver in relation to national objectives. And I think this, is, this seems to be the fundamental problem. So it's not just that there is pressure on the ground and a particular misguided or not misguided narrative which is adopted, um, but that there's a, a, a London government which is there substantially to serve national purposes or purposes of some national classes, however you like to construct it. Um, it's true of assembly members who have to have gone political who have all gone national. Yes. Yes. So yes. Quite a number. Um, I mean, is that not the case? So it's not just the failure of a. I, I think well, I, the only time I, I actually I remember anybody almost challenging this was your economic strategy document. The early pages yeah. had opposite yeah. sides, two yeah. headlines, one of which said, London is this yeah. great world city. Yeah. On the other side, it says, but not just that, it's that. But yes. nobody ever picked up. We did get told our fortunes quite quickly. Yes. <laughs> uh, but for a reason, I just want to say one other thing in response to that. It's not primarily a Livingston or a Johnson thing. Let's be absolutely clear it's business, property, Development, London first in the ten years before the Meralty was created. That's where that story comes from, um, and uh, I think uh, uh, I think the Labour administration, first nationally and then in London, made a sort of sort of Faustian pact with that world. Yes, yes, yes. Um, but you know that's where it started from. But I it was to push Gordon Brown's buttons. After that, it was adopted by the GLA. Yes, I mean, possibly. I mean, the extension of planning powers was actually won on the argument, the very false argument, that councils were refusing too many planning applications. Because I was sitting all with the evidence which we put together, and it was fundamental abuse of the actual evidence base that it convinced Gordon Brown. Um, that the mayor would actually grant more planning consents than boroughs. I'm sure he didn't need much convincing. No, no, if anybody, I mean, there's the best account I know of what you were just saying, the sort of Faustian pact made by Ken Livingstone in the early period with the National Government, and Tony from uh, is in an interview which Dorian Massey did with Ken Livingstone, which is published in Salvin's magazine. Very, very interesting. She's basically having a friendly old pals chat with Plinkston and saying, why did you came in completely to Judith Mayhew and City London Corporation and Howard Chapman and uh, all that lot, funky first, and give them everything they wanted on uh, office development, on Crossrail, on... Uh, what was the answer? And 
based on said, well, you know, it's politics, and I had to fix it with, I had to show the Labour government that I was trustworthy and on the side of business in order to get the money and to be allowed to go ahead with X and Y and Z projects. But I think, let me absolutely clear, I don't know this. I don't know this. I observe and I comment. I think the answer to your question is uh, congestion charge. Why did those people not oppose the congestion charge? Because they've got most of the rest of our government together. <laughs> <laughs> On which note, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>